You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with the sermon this morning, which will be focused on verse 12 of Acts chapter 4. I'd invite you to turn to Acts 4 and we'll read the verses 1 through 21. Peter and John, standing before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish rulers and elders, this follows, of course, the fact that Peter has healed a, a crippled man in the temple courts and then has, following that, proclaimed Jesus Christ to all the people who have seen what he, he has done there. That caused the attention of the priests and the captain of the guard in the temple, and they bring them before the leaders. And that's where we pick it up here in Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any, any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Our text this morning is John chapter 4, verse 12. This is Peter speaking. He preaches, testifies about Jesus to the Jewish leadership. And he says to them, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven 
given to men by which we must be saved. The name, of course, being the name of Jesus Christ. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, guests, those watching via the live feed over the internet, to quickly recap the text that has our focus this morning, Acts chapter 4, realize, as I already mentioned, that this all takes place shortly after Jesus Christ himself has risen from the dead, appeared, as we know from Paul, to over 500 people, and then ascended into heaven. That is what is fresh in the, in the minds and the experience of Peter and John and the disciples and all those who, who have followed Jesus Christ while he was on the earth. And Peter, one of his disciples, has then gone to the temple courts to praise God, and, and there he has healed a crippled man, a man who was crippled for over 40 years. And he used that opportunity to speak about the power of Jesus Christ, the, the risen Jesus Christ, in whose name he now has done this miracle and healed this man, and to preach to the people and to tell them, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ must be the Savior, the Messiah, they need to repent from their sins and believe in Him. And find their salvation in Him alone. Now these bold words, they, they capture the attention of the temple guard and the, the rulers of the people who are there in the temple, but rather than repent, as they should have done, these men arrest them and bring them into the Sanhedrin to stand trial for the words that they have spoken. Now, that'd be a scary thing, being brought to the, the rulers of the people with quite some authority and having to answer the question of what they are preaching. But here too, Peter cannot help, as he says in verse 20, he cannot help speaking about what he has seen and heard, and he urges them as well to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. As we come to Acts chapter 4 then, verse 12, we come face to face with one of the earliest claims of the post-resurrection era Christian church about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is indeed the only Savior, the only way to God. When he says to them, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The words are as clear as they are comprehensive. Salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven. Under heaven, he's speaking as, as broadly as he possibly can. No other name on the entire earth. Or no other name of anyone who has ever lived. Given to men by which we must be saved. Apart from the name of Jesus Christ. And name there, of course, refers to his title like the name of a king. No other name, no other power, no other person who can save except for Jesus, who is 
the Christ. And that's our theme this morning. Jesus is the only Savior. We'll look first, and we'll look at this text, and we'll consider more broadly the basis for this claim. How is it that Peter can make this very strong and very exclusive claim about Jesus Christ? We'll consider also the purpose of this claim. What does he hope to achieve in in stating this to the Sanhedrin and in these words being recorded in Scripture for all people everywhere to hear and read and understand? And then finally, we'll consider the manner of this claim. How is this claim made by Peter? And how is it to be made by all those who confess their faith in Jesus Christ alone? So first, the basis for this claim that Jesus is the only way to God. What kind of authority does Peter stand on when he makes this claim? Is this something that we can just discount as being just another claim that some person somewhere has made? Or is this one that we need to take very seriously? Now, many people in our modern secular culture, the North American culture, would make the claim that all religions are basically the same, but they differ in a couple of minor secondary things. So, they all believe in in God, and they all believe that there's a certain way that God wants people to live, and therefore they're all basically the same, but only in secondary things like what some of those things are and what you're supposed to wear and eat and things like that, do they differ? But the problem with that claim is that religions are in fact the opposite of what's stated there. All, all religions might agree on some secondary things, like uh, don't kill and be respectful to others, but fundamentally they are profoundly different. Profoundly different. I'll give you two brief examples. Buddhists, most Buddhists, do not even believe in God. They deny that there's a God. So how can a Buddhist be compared to a Christian and lumped all together saying they basically believe the same thing? They don't basically believe the same thing at all. Or also consider that Muslims are radically monotheistic and anti-Trinitarian. They believe in one God and they reject the idea of a trinity. So how then can a Muslim and a Christian be said to to believe the same thing? When Christians believe in a trinity, a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or how can a Muslim be said to believe basically the same thing as a Hindu who believes there's all kinds of different gods? No, all religions are basically different and might agree on some secondary things. Well, the Christian message is certainly different. And it speaks about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, the only one who does that. Christianity is founded on, based on, the idea that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only way to God. And that's clear in this passage in front of us this morning. It's clear from other passages in the New Testament. John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. Or 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, where Paul says that there is only one mediator between God and all men, and that is the man Jesus Christ. But really, the whole Bible 
has the thrust of, of this message central to it. The whole Old Testament scriptures, the, the scriptures that the New Testament church was, was founded on, was based on, are full of prophecies about none other than Jesus Christ. Allusions to His work demands for someone just like Him to come and to save the world from what ails it. To save the world from, from sinfulness, from rebellion, from the, from the distance that it has from God, from God's anger upon this world because of the, the sins and rebellion that they perpetuate against God. And in the Old Testament Scriptures, this person is referred to as the Messiah. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the Anointed King. In the New Testament Scriptures, as they make the transition from Hebrew to Greek, that word is simply Christ. And so the Old Testament is, is waiting for, is prophesying, is testifying to none other than the Christ. Of course, we know Him as Jesus Christ, to be precise. And so it is from the very beginning that Christians have been making this claim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, He's the Christ, and He is the only Savior. And that's what the disciples, that's what Peter being steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures, being taught to to look for this Messiah, that's what when Jesus came, they realized. And so they put their faith in Him. This man is the one whom we have been waiting for. This man is the Messiah, the Christ. It was not only a message that was contained in the Old Testament. It was a message that the disciples and the early believers believed to be true. They put their faith in Him. That He was who He claimed to be, the Savior. Of course, you realize that not everyone who read the Old Testament, who knew what was there, believed The Sanhedrin did not believe. And that's why they haul these men in front of them to give a testimony. But we should realize also that the the apostles and the disciples, they didn't believe in Jesus Christ out of what you might call mere faith, simple faith that isn't backed up by any, uh, any evidence, as in the close your eyes and ignore what's going on all around you kind of faith. No, their faith was grounded in reality. It was grounded in history. It was grounded in their own experience. Peter says, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What is it that they've seen and heard? Well, they've seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They saw Him die, and He was buried and that He rose again from the dead and appeared to them before their very eyes. They could even touch Him. Their faith was grounded in the resurrection, the rising up of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's the case that Peter makes to the Sanhedrin. Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, verse 10. And he comes back to it in verse 20 when he says, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the event of Jesus appearing in the flesh bodily to His disciples, those who knew Him best while He was on this earth, three days after He was crucified and buried, formed the centerpiece of the message of the apostles and of the early church. 
They staked their life, they staked their faith on that one fact that indeed Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that continues to be the heart of the message of Christianity today as well. That continues to be the heart of our faith and our life as Christians. Paul captured the sentiment well in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But, if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, then that changes everything. Why, you might ask, is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead important? Well, there are many significant things about the resurrection that it teaches us, but at its core it has to do with the reality of death. Death is a reality. We're all faced with that for ourselves. We know and love people who have faced that reality. And like the saying goes, there are two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. We could explain the relevance of death by comparing it to taxes. Taxes are what we owe to the government. Everybody must pay taxes to the government in order to support them for the things, the programs that they run. Every government charges its citizens taxes. Everybody owes the government taxes. Well, what do we owe to God? We owe to God perfect obedience. We read earlier in the service God's law. God is a holy and righteous God. God cannot live with disobedience and rebellion. And so for people to live with God, for people to come to God, they must be perfect. They must perfectly obey Him on a level that is equal with His own holiness. God can't change who He is. For people to come to God... They must be perfect. So perfect obedience is what we owe to God. Well, if you don't pay your taxes to the government, what happens to you? You go to jail. Everybody must pay taxes. If you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. Well, if you don't perfectly obey God, if you don't give to God what He is due, perfect obedience, not to mention worship and praise, then you are sinning against Him. And then you face the consequence of that sin, which is death and eternal punishment, hell. Well, if death is a punishment for sin, then to reverse the effects of death, sin must be finally and ultimately paid for. Death is a consequence of of sin. If sin is paid for, then death will be defeated. Death has come, God's Word teaches us, as a result of sin. Death is the payment for sin. Well, to come and pay for sin is exactly what Jesus Christ did and what the disciples witnessed. First, Jesus Christ came and He died on the cross. The cross was a symbol of, of curse, of God's curse. And so Christ suffered the punishment and the wrath of God against all humanity. He paid, you could call, the sin tax. 
the punishment that everyone who sins against God owes to God, Jesus Christ paid on the cross. And then He died. He paid the ultimate penalty. He died and He was buried. But since He died in innocence, death could not hold Him down. Death is for those who sin. It's the payment for those who sin. Jesus Christ did not sin. And so death couldn't hold Him down. And God vindicated Him and He raised Him up from the dead. God would not let him stay in the grave because he had died in innocence. And this event of a man dying and then rising from the dead is earth-shattering. It signaled a new world order. It changed everything. Up to that point, people died and that was it. People sinned and died And that was it. Now came a man who lived perfectly, was innocent, and died, and rose from the dead. Which means that the power of death has been broken. And that there is a man more powerful than death. There is a man who has paid the penalty for sin. This man was none other than Jesus Christ. And so you understand why Christians say that there's only salvation through Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus is an exclusive kind of Savior. He's the only one who has paid for sin and risen from the dead. He's the only Savior for people like us. And He's the only one who promises a future where death is defeated and where we can live in harmony with God. If you want to speak about universalism, universalism is the idea that everyone everywhere is saved, no matter what they believe, no matter what they do. Well, if you want to speak about being universal, then we have to speak about the universal human condition, which is one of, of lostness, which is one of rebellion, which is one of sinfulness. But if we want to start speaking about salvation, then we have to get particular. Because there is only one Savior for what ails us and what ails this world, and that is Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. So that's the basis that the disciples stood on, the the resurrection. Now we'll consider the purpose for making this claim. Why did Peter and the others in the church from all times and ages, why has the church always made this claim that Jesus is the only way to God? In our world, a world that rejects an overarching idea of truth, you might hear it said that, well, all religions are attempting to get at the truth. None is ultimately successful. We all see a different part of the truth. We all emphasize different things. But no one really gets the whole picture. The old metaphor of the blind man and the elephants is, is used here. Or one blind man, maybe if you know the story, one blind man is, is holding the trunk of the elephant and he says, an elephant is just like a tree. He's got this hard kind of round thing up, going up and down. A blind man, uh, an elephant is just like a tree. And there's another elephant who's, or another blind man, I should say, who's standing at the side of the elephant, feeling the side, and he says, an elephant is just like a barn. Is big and broad and, as far as I can feel, solid, just like a barn. 
And then there's another blind man who's holding the tail of an elephant, saying an elephant is just like a rope. Small and kind of stringy. An elephant is just like a rope. And so all the blind men are, are describing only what they can see, and none of them sees the whole picture. That's what a lot of people in our world will say about religions, that we're all sort of like those blind men. And they'll all say as a result that nobody can really know what the elephant looks like. But the problem, of course, with this metaphor is you realize that the person who, who is using the metaphor, who is explaining it this way, is actually the person who can see everything, right? They can see the whole elephant, and they can see all the blind men, and they know, oh, that person's wrong, and oh, that guy's wrong too, and so is the one, think this is a barn. And so they are saying that, well, they actually know the truth, but everyone else doesn't. Which is, of course, the, the very idea that they are trying to reject in the first place. So, it's not going to do to say that, well, everyone has a little bit of the truth and only I know it. In fact, Christianity is founded on the idea that God is truth, and truth comes from God, and so we can know the truth. We are we stand in the reality of truth, and that we can know the truth. And why the apostles and Christians of all ages have been so eager to get the message out about Jesus Christ is because of their conviction about the truth. And this conviction becomes shining through in this chapter, Acts chapter 4. In the first place, the disciples are risking their neck by proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they would only do that if they believed wholeheartedly that the message they were proclaiming was true. In addition to that, the truth was standing right before their eyes. You talk about blind men. These men from the Sanhedrin are acting like blind men. Peter says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ that this man now stands before you healed. Peter's logic is simple. If Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, then he's more powerful than death. And if this man has been raised, has been healed in Jesus' name, then Jesus is more powerful than, than disease. And if Jesus is more powerful than death and more powerful than disease, then Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Then Jesus Christ is extremely powerful. And only one kind of person has that power. And that is God. That is God's Messiah. The truth of both who Jesus is and what He means for the world was present right there before the Sanhedrin in that crippled man who was now standing there on healthy legs. And what Peter and John were testifying to was obvious for everyone to see. But it's striking to see the comedy that gets played out in verses 13 to 17 as the Sanhedrin has to deal with this. Now, Peter's logic is flawless and exhibit A is standing right in front of them. But the Sanhedrin believers are intent on not believing the truth. They can't work with it even when it's standing there right in front of their face. Look at what they say in verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. We can't deny it. And so on, on one level, they cannot deny the truth, but yet they proceed to do exactly that and to deny the truth about Jesus Christ. 
and the difference that he makes. The truth stares them in the face. They choose to look the other way. Well, this is in fact the same for anyone who would choose to reject the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look into it for yourself. Look at the very best scholarship. Look at the best historians. And consider the reality of the resurrection from the dead. There is no event in history, in ancient history, that has as much testimony, as much proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'd have a better time proving that Julius Caesar never existed than you would of saying that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. And if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then that changes everything. If He rose from the dead, then the Christian Gospel is true, that the way to God is through Him, and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior that you and I need. And so the disciples were compelled by truth. As they said in verse 20, they can't help but testify to it. But they're also compelled by compassion for their fellow man. They're intent upon spreading this message because it's a message of hope and salvation for everyone who believes it. The disciples, in speaking about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, are not simply being polemical. They are being polemical. The the Jewish leaders don't agree with them. They think they're wrong. And Peter and John are saying, no, you guys are wrong. But that's not their purpose. They're motivated by love and a desire to help their fellow man so that they too can experience the saving power of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes through Him. As Christians, this is why we speak this message. Because it's a message of salvation and hope. Yes, it's an exclusive message. No, everyone doesn't agree with it. But we preach it out of love for the salvation of others. If you have never heard, or if you don't believe the claims about Jesus, then we urge you to consider them, to contemplate them, and ultimately to find your hope and salvation in them. So the purpose was one of salvation, ultimately, that Peter and the others were proclaiming this message. Finally, we come to the manner of this claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Now, when you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that He is the only Savior, you can come off sounding a little bit arrogant. As if only we know the truth and everyone else doesn't. Are we really saying that all those millions of people who don't agree with Christianity are wrong? And so, the accusation is made that we are being arrogant. Well, without answering that accusation directly, I'd like us all to consider that that position is also quite arrogant to say that Christianity must be wrong and that someone who agrees with that position is wrong and is discounted. In fact, the position that says that the exclusive claims of Christianity are arrogant must then say that the exclusive claims of every religion are arrogant. Every world religion has uncompromising doctrines about about how to live in this life and what's necessary for the life to come. 
And so the person who said, who claims that Christians are being arrogant by proclaiming Jesus must be proclaiming that everyone who says anything that they don't agree with is actually being quite arrogant. You realize that that position itself comes off sounding a little bit arrogant. Now, it's possible that Christians can proclaim this message arrogantly, but we ought not to. We ought not to. How is this message to be proclaimed? Well, it is to be proclaimed courageously. That's what Peter was doing in front of the Sanhedrin. They saw the courage of Peter and John, realizing they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note of them. They were impressed because these men could stand up and speak so boldly. Well, where did they get this courage from? Well, they got it ultimately from the Holy Spirit. God gave them this courage to preach their message. And they were, and the basis of that courage was reality. It was the fact that they had seen the risen Jesus Christ. And so they were compelled to go and preach Him. That's the case when you see the truth. It compels you to be courageous. These men couldn't change their mind. They couldn't change what they had seen and heard about Jesus Christ. And so they knew what they had to do, no matter what the cost. That was to preach the message, the gospel, of the one Savior, Jesus Christ. But as they went, they also went humbly. And we must go humbly as well. Because the very message of the gospel is humbling. Every other religion teaches that you can find fulfillment in this life and the next through your actions, by being a better person, focusing on the right things, avoiding the right situations. But Christianity alone teaches that salvation is based not on what, not how, on how good we are, but on a realization of how bad we are. That salvation can't be achieved by us, but it had to be achieved by someone else. And that someone else was graciously and lovingly given us by God, His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the message of Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ, teaches us all to be profoundly humble and simply to thank God for what He has given us in our Savior. And finally, we are to preach this message lovingly. We want to speak boldly. We want to speak truthfully. We want to not cut corners over the facts, because, but ultimately we speak out of love. A doctor who would hold back a prescription that might save his patient because they don't agree with that or, or it might be painful for them is not a loving doctor. A doctor who acts out of love gives what's necessary to save his patient. A friend who holds back information to their friend about the way home on the bus route because their friend might not like going that way, is not being a loving friend. loving friend tells what's necessary for others to hear. Love compels us to speak about Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Just like in our text, it was love that compelled Peter to heal the cripple, to preach to the crowds, to stand up boldly before the Sanhedrin. So it must be love, care, concern for our fellow man and woman that motivates us to tell the world that there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved 
In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.